after delivering a fiery call to arms, who will help André-Louis evade capture? Raphael Sabatini, today on the Classic Tales Podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales Podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you to all of our financial supporters. With us giving away so much free material during this time of the pandemic, we need your help more than ever. Five bucks a month really goes a long way right now. Thank you so much for helping to keep us afloat. In case you haven't already, feel free to take advantage of our free titles. I get so happy when I see someone has downloaded the free audiobook titles, especially new customers. I tried to have something for everyone, from several genres, and geared for all ages. Please click on over to our free section and enjoy. There's a link to the free material in the description for this week's episode. App users can hear Sonnet 116 from William Shakespeare and their special features this week. This is the final sonnet from the Bard we'll be sharing. While we didn't win an independent audiobook award for The Hunchback of Notre Dame, but it was seriously amazing to see all of the top talent that I was nominated with. Some of the top names in the business. Thank you so much for helping us to create such a noteworthy audiobook. Thank you to Annie from the Join Us in France podcast who helped with the pronunciations of the French names and phrases for this week's episode. If you're interested in France at all, you should check out her show. It's fantastic. Now for our personal moment. We have some friends that we meet with about every week, at least we used to. Last time we saw them was back in March, and it's been a long, dry time. Uh, Goldie would go with us, and she's a little bit older than all of the other kids, and they would all the kids would play together, you know. And Goldie created a scouting program. There's boys and girls, and so they didn't want to call it boys and girls, so they called it Slummer Scouts, because some of them are so little, they wanted it to be slumber, uh, but it also happened in the summer, so they decided to mix it together, because that was the easiest thing for all of the little ones to say. So it's called Slummer Scouts, and she creates activities... She sews badges and bandoliers. She teaches them to paint. And now she's done it virtually for several months now. Her latest thing is to have them all run for office, like president and vice president and intern. And it's amazing, the politics with six-year-olds. It's like, they're amazing kids. We really miss them. Hopefully we'll all come out of the other side of this someday. A couple notes on this week's episode. Omnis omnibus means... All, everyone, in Latin. Also, the second portion of the book that we're going to begin today is called The Buskin. Now, you costumers might know a buskin to be a laced boot reaching halfway or more to the knee, and you'd be right. However, there's a second meaning which is in reference to tragedy, especially a tragedy in the Greek drama tradition. This latter definition is the one Sabatini references. So here's the story so far. André-Louis, a privileged lawyer from Gavriac, is on a mission to speak out for the downtrodden, especially the poor who have fewer rights than the nobles, collectively known as the Third Estate. Beginning with the deaths of Mabe, 
then his friend Philippe, and finally the two protesters that were killed at Rennes during a demonstration, André-Louis has become the person chosen to deliver the message of defiance from Rennes to the town of Nantes. This is where we begin today. And now, Scaramouche, Part 3 of 12, by Raphael Sabatini. Chapter 8. Omnes Omnibus André-Louis rode forth from Rennes, committed to a deeper adventure than he had dreamed of when he left the sleepy village of Gavriac. Lying the night at a roadside inn, and setting out again early in the morning, he reached Nantes soon after noon of the following day. Through that long and lonely ride through the dull plains of Brittany, now at their dreariest in their winter garb, he had ample leisure in which to review his actions and his position. From one who had taken hitherto a purely academic and by no means friendly interest in the new philosophies of social life, exercising his wits upon these new ideas merely as a fencer, exercises his eye and wrist with the foils, without ever suffering himself to be deluded into supposing the issue a real one, he found himself suddenly converted into a revolutionary firebrand, committed to revolutionary action of the most desperate kind. The representative and delegate of a nobleman in the states of Brittany, he found himself simultaneously and incongruously the representative and delegate of the whole third estate of Rennes. It is difficult to determine to what extent in the heat of passion and swept along by the torrent of his own oratory, he might yesterday have succeeded in deceiving himself. But it is at least certain that, looking back in cold blood now, he had no single delusion on the score of what he had done. Cynically, he had presented to his audience one side only of the great question that he propounded. But since the established order of things in France was such as to make a rampart for Monsieur de la Tour d'Azir, affording him complete immunity for this and any other crimes that it pleased him to commit, why, then the established order must take the consequences of its wrongdoing. Therein he perceived his clear justification. And so it was without misgivings that he came on his errand of sedition into that beautiful city of Nantes, rendered by its spacious streets and splendid port the rival in prosperity of Bordeaux and Marseille. He found an inn on the Quai La Fosse, where he put up his horse, and where he dined in the embrasure of a window, that looked out over the tree-bordered quay and the broad bosom of the Loire, on which argosies of all nations rode at anchor. The sun had again broken through the clouds, and shed its pale, wintry light over the yellow waters and the tall-masted shipping. Along the quays there was a stir of life as great as that to be seen on the quays of Paris. Foreign sailors in outlandish garments, and of harsh-sounding, outlandish speech, stalwart fishwives with baskets of herrings on their heads, voluminous of petticoat, above bare legs and bare feet, calling their wares shrilly and almost inarticulately. Watermen in woollen caps and loose trousers rolled to the knees, 
peasants in goatskin coats, their wooden shoes clattering on the round kidney stones, shipwrights and laborers from the dockyards, bellows menders, rat catchers, water carriers, ink sellers, and other itinerant peddlers. And sprinkled through this proletariat mass that came and went in constant movement, André Louis beheld tradesmen in sober garments, merchants in long, fur-lined coats, occasionally a merchant prince rolling along in his two-horse cabriolet to the whip-crackings and shouts of Gah! from his coachman. Occasionally a dainty lady carried past in her sedan-chair, with perhaps a mincing abbe from the Episcopal court tripping along in attendance, occasionally an officer in scarlet riding disdainfully, and once the great carriage of a nobleman, with escutcheoned panels, and a pair of white-stockinged, powdered footmen in gorgeous liveries hanging on behind. And there were Capuchins in brown and Benedictines in black, and secular priests in plenty, for God was well served in the sixteen parishes of Nantes, and by way of contrast there were lean-jawed, out-at-elbow adventurers, and gendarmes in blue coats and gaitered legs, sauntering guardians of the peace. Representatives of every class that went to make up the seventy thousand inhabitants of that wealthy, industrious city were to be seen in the human stream that ebbed and flowed beneath the window from which André Louis observed it. Of the waiter who ministered to his humble wants with soup and bouilli, and a measure of vengris, André Louis inquired into the state of public feeling in the city. The waiter, a staunch supporter of the privileged orders, admitted regretfully that an uneasiness prevailed. Much would depend upon what happened at Rennes. If it was true that the king had dissolved the states of Brittany, then all should be well, and the malcontents would have no pretext for further disturbances. There had been trouble and to spare in Nantes already. They wanted no repetition of it. All manner of rumours were abroad, and since early morning there had been crowds besieging the portals of the Chamber of Commerce for definite news. But definite news was yet to come. It was not even known for a fact that His Majesty actually had dissolved the States. It was striking, too, the busiest hour of the day upon the Boers, when André Louis reached the Place du Commerce. The square, dominated by the imposing classical building of the exchange, was so crowded that he was compelled almost to fight his way through to the steps of the magnificent Ionic porch. A word would have sufficed to have opened a way for him at once. But guile moved him to keep silent. He would come upon that waiting multitude as a thunderclap, precisely as yesterday he had come upon the mob at Rennes. He would lose nothing of the surprise effect of his entrance. The precincts of that house of commerce were jealously kept by a line of ushers armed with staves, a guard as hurriedly assembled by the merchants as it was evidently necessary. One of these now effectively barred the young lawyer's passage as he attempted to mount the steps. André Louis announced himself in a whisper. The stave was instantly raised from the horizontal, and he passed and went up the steps in the wake of the usher. At the top, on the threshold of the chamber, he paused and stayed his guide. I will wait here, he announced. Bring the President to me. 
Your name, monsieur? Almost had André-Louis answered him when he remembered Le Chapelier's warning of the danger with which his mission was fraught, and Le Chapelier's parting admonition to conceal his identity. My name is unknown to him, it matters nothing. I am the mouthpiece of a people, no more. Go. The usher went, and in the shadow of that lofty, pillared portico, André-Louis waited, his eyes straying out ever and anon to survey that spread of upturned faces immediately below him. Soon the President came, others following, crowding out into the portico, jostling one another in their eagerness to hear the news. "'You are a messenger from Rennes?' "'I am the delegate sent by the literary chamber of that city to inform you here in Nantes of what is taking place. "'Your name?' André-Louis paused. "'The less we mention names, perhaps the better.' "'The President's eyes grew big with gravity.' He was a corpulent, florid man, purse-proud and self-sufficient. He hesitated a moment. Then, "'Come into the chamber,' said he. "'By your leave, monsieur, I will deliver my message from here, from these steps.' "'From here?' the great merchant frowned. "'My message is for the people of Nantes, and from here I can speak at once to the greatest number of Nantes of all ranks.' and it is my desire, and the desire of those whom I represent, that as great a number as possible should hear my message at first hand. Tell me, sir, is it true that the king has dissolved the states? André-Louis looked at him. He smiled apologetically, and waved a hand towards the crowd, which by now was straining for a glimpse of this slim young man, who had brought forth the president and more than half the numbers of the chamber, guessing already, with that curious instinct of crowds, that he was the awaited bearer of tidings. "'Summon the gentlemen of your chamber, monsieur,' said he, "'and you shall hear all. So be it.' A word, and forth they came to crowd upon the steps, but leaving clear the topmost step and a half-moon space in the middle. To the spot so indicated, André-Louis now advanced very deliberately. He took his stand there, dominating the entire assembly. He removed his hat, and launched the opening bombshell of that address which is historic, marking as it does one of the great stages of France's progress towards revolution. People of this great city of Nantes, I have come to summon you to arms. In the amazed and rather scared silence that followed, he surveyed them for a moment before resuming. I am a delegate of the people of Rennes, charged to announce to you what is taking place, and to invite you in this dreadful hour of our country's peril to rise and march to her defence. Name! Your name! a voice shouted, and instantly the cry was taken up by others, until the multitude rang with the question. He could not answer that excited mob as he had answered the President, it was necessary to compromise, and he did so happily. My name, said he, is Omnis Omnibus, all for all. Let that suffice you now. I am a herald, a mouthpiece, a voice, no more. I come to announce to you that since the privileged orders, 
assembled for the states of Brittany and Rennes, resisted your will, our will, despite the king's plain hint to them, His Majesty has dissolved the states. There was a burst of delirious applause. Men laughed and shouted, and cries of Vive le roi rolled forth like thunder. Andre Louis waited, and gradually the preternatural gravity of his countenance came to be observed, and to beget the suspicion that there might be more to follow. Gradually silence was restored, and at last Andre Louis was able to proceed. You rejoice too soon. Unfortunately, the nobles, in their insolent arrogance, have elected to ignore the royal dissolution, and in despite of it, persist in sitting and in conducting matters as seems good to them. A silence of utter dismay greeted that disconcerting epilogue to the announcement that had been so rapturously received. André-Louis continued after a moment's pause. So that these men, who were already rebels against the people, rebels against justice and equity, rebels against humanity itself, are now also rebels against their king. Sooner than yield an inch of the unconscionable privileges by which too long already they have flourished to the misery of a whole nation— they will make a mock of royal authority, hold up the king himself to contempt. They are determined to prove that there is no real sovereignty in France but the sovereignty of their own parasitic fainéantes. There was a faint splutter of applause, but the majority of the audience remained silent, waiting. This is no new thing. Always has it been the same. No minister in the last ten years who, seeing the needs and perils of the state, counselled the measures that we now demand as the only means of arresting our motherland in its ever-quickening progress to the abyss, but found themselves, as a consequence, cast out of office by the influence which privilege brought to bear against him. Twice already has Monsieur Necker been called to the ministry, to be twice dismissed when his insistent counsels of reform threatened the privileges of clergy and nobility. For the third time now has he been called to office, and at last it seems we are to have states-general in spite of privilege. But what the privileged orders can no longer prevent, they are determined to stultify. Since it is now a settled thing that these states-general are to meet, at least the nobles and the clergy will see to it, unless we take measures to prevent them, by packing the third estate with their own creatures, and denying it all effective representation, that they convert the states-general into an instrument of their own will for the perpetuation of the abuses by which they live. To achieve this end, they will stop at nothing." They have flouted the authority of the king, and they are silencing by assassination those who raise their voices to condemn them. Yesterday in Rennes, two young men, who addressed the people as I am addressing you, were done to death in the streets by assassins at the instigation of the nobility. Their blood cries out for vengeance. Beginning in a sullen mutter, 
the indignation that moved his hearers, swelled up to express itself in a roar of anger. Citizens of Nantes, the motherland is in peril. Let us march to her defence. Let us proclaim it to the world that we recognise that the measures to liberate the third estate from the slavery in which for centuries it has groaned find only obstacles in those orders whose frenetic egotism sees, in the tears and suffering of the unfortunate, an odious tribute which they would pass on to their generations still unborn. Realising from the barbarity of the means employed of our enemies to perpetrate our oppression that we have everything to fear from the aristocracy, they would set up as a constitutional principle for the governing of France, let us declare ourselves at once enfranchised from it. The establishment of liberty and equality should be the aim of every citizen member of the third estate, and to this end we should stand indivisibly united, especially the young and vigorous, especially those who have had the good fortune to be born late enough to be able to gather for themselves the precious fruits of the philosophy of this eighteenth century. Acclamations broke out unstintedly now. He had caught them in the snare of his oratory, and he pressed his advantage instantly. "'Let us all swear,' he cried in a great voice, "'to raise up in the name of humanity and of liberty a rampart against our enemies, to oppose to their bloodthirsty covetousness the calm perseverance of men whose cause is just.' and let us protest here and in advance against any tyrannical decrees that should declare us seditious when we have none but pure and just intentions. Let us make oath upon the honour of our motherland that should any of us be seized by an unjust tribunal intending against us one of those acts termed of political expediency, which are, in effect, but acts of despotism, let us swear, I say, to give a full expression to the strength that is in us, and do that in self-defence which nature, courage, and despair dictate to us. Loud and long rolled the applause that greeted his conclusion, and he observed with satisfaction and even some inward grim amusement that the wealthy merchants who had been congregated upon the steps and who now came crowding about him to shake him by the hand and to acclaim him, were not merely participants in, but the actual leaders of, this delirium of enthusiasm. It confirmed him, had he needed confirmation, in his conviction that just as the philosophies upon which this new movement was based had their source in thinkers extracted from the bourgeoisie, so the need to adopt those philosophies to the practical purposes of life, was most acutely felt at present by those bourgeois who found themselves debarred by privilege from the expansion their wealth permitted them. If it might be said of André-Louis that he had that day lighted the torch of the revolution in Nantes, it might with even greater truth be said that the torch itself was supplied by the opulent bourgeoisie. I need not dwell at any length upon the sequel. It is a matter of history how that oath which Omnis Omnibus administered to the citizens of Nantes 
formed the backbone of the formal protest which they drew up and signed in their thousands. Nor were the results of that powerful protest, which after all might already be said to harmonize with the expressed will of the sovereign himself, long delayed. Who shall say how far it may have strengthened the hand of Necker, when on the twenty-seventh of that same month of November he compelled the council to adopt the most significant and comprehensive of all those measures to which clergy and nobility had refused their consent. On that date was published the royal decree, ordaining that the deputies to be elected to the States-General should number at least one thousand, and that the deputies of the Third Estate should be fully representative by numbering as many as the deputies of clergy and nobilities together. Chapter 9 The Aftermath Dusk of the following day was falling, when the homing André-Louis approached Gavriac. Realizing fully what a hue and cry there would presently be for the apostle of revolution, who had summoned the people of Nantes to arms, he desired as far as possible to conceal the fact that he had been in that maritime city. Therefore he made a wide detour, crossing the river at Bruges, and recrossing it a little above Chauvagne, so as to approach Gavriac from the north, and create the impression that he was returning from Rennes, whither he was known to have gone two days ago. Within a mile or so of the village, he caught in the fading light his first glimpse of a figure on horseback pacing slowly towards him. But it was not until they had come within a few yards of each other, and he observed that this cloaked figure was leaning forward to peer at him, that he took much notice of it. And then he found himself challenged almost at once by a woman's voice. "'It is you, André, at last!' He drew rein, mildly surprised, to be assailed by another question, impatiently, anxiously, asked, "'Where have you been?' "'Where have I been, Cousin Aline? "'Oh, seeing the world, I have been patrolling this road since noon today, waiting for you.' She spoke breathlessly, in haste to explain. "'A troop of the Marais-Chaussée from Rennes descended upon Gavriac this morning in quest of you. They turned the chateau and the village inside out, and at last discovered that you were due to return with a horse hired from the Breton arm. So they have taken up their quarters at the inn to wait for you. I have been here all the afternoon on the lookout to warn you against walking into that trap. My dear Aline, that I should have been the cause of so much concern and trouble. Never mind that. It is not important. On the contrary, it is the most important part of what you tell me. It is the rest that is unimportant. Do you realize that they have come to arrest you? She asked him, with increasing impatience. You are wanted for sedition, and upon a warrant from Monsieur de Lédiquière. Sedition, quoth he, and his thoughts flew to that business at Nantes. It was impossible they could have had news of it in Rennes, and acted upon it in so short a time. Yes, sedition, the sedition of that wicked speech of yours at Rennes on Wednesday. Oh, that, said he, pooh! His note of relief might have told her, had she been more attentive, that he had to fear the consequences of a greater wickedness committed since. Why, that was nothing. Nothing? 
I almost suspect that the real intentions of these gentlemen of the Marechaussee have been misunderstood. Most probably they have come to thank me on Monsieur de Lediguier's behalf. I restrained the people when they would have burnt the palais and himself inside it. After you had first incited them to do it. I suppose you were afraid of your work. You drew back at the last moment. But you said things of Monsieur de Lediguier, if you are correctly reported, which he will never forgive. I see, said André Louis, and he fell into thought. But Mademoiselle de Kercadieu had already done what thinking was necessary, and her alert young mind had settled all that was to be done. You must not go into Gavriac, she told him, and you must get down from your horse and let me take it. I will stable it at the chateau to-night, and sometime to-morrow afternoon, by when you should be well away, I will return it to the Breton arm. Oh, but that is impossible. Impossible? Why? For several reasons. One of them is that you haven't considered what will happen to you if you do such a thing. To me? Do you suppose I am afraid of the pack of oafs sent by Monsieur Lediguier? I have committed no sedition. But it is almost as bad to give aid to one who is wanted for the crime. That is the law. What do I care for the law? Do you imagine that the law will presume to touch me? Of course there is that. You are sheltered by one of the abuses I complained of at Rennes. I was forgetting. Complain of it as much as you please, but meanwhile profit by it. Come, André, do as I tell you. Get down from your horse. And then, as he still hesitated, she stretched out and caught him by the arm. Her voice was vibrant with earnestness. André, you don't realize how serious is your position. If these people take you, it is almost certain that you will be hanged. Don't you realize it? You must not go to Gavriac. You must go away at once, and lie completely lost for a time until this blows over. Indeed, until my uncle can bring influence to bear to obtain your pardon, you must keep in hiding. That will be a long time, then, said André Louis. Monsieur de Kierkadou has never cultivated friends at court. There is Monsieur de la Tour d'Azir, she reminded him, to his astonishment. That man, he cried, and then he laughed. But it was chiefly against him that I roused the resentment of the people of Rennes. I should have known that all my speech was not reported to you. It was, and that part of it among the rest. Ah, and yet you are concerned to save me, the man who seeks the life of your future husband— at the hands either of the law or the people. Or is it perhaps that since you have seen his true nature revealed in the murder of poor Philippe, you have changed your views on the subject of becoming Marquise de la Tour d'Azir? You often show yourself without any faculty of deductive reasoning, perhaps, but hardly to the extent of imagining that Monsieur de la Tour d'Azir will ever lift a finger to do as you suggest in which, as usual, you are wrong. He will certainly do so if I ask him. If you ask him? Sheer horror rang in his voice. Why, yes. You see, I have not yet said that I will be Marquise de la Tour d'Azir. I am still considering. It is a position that has its advantages. One of them is that it ensures a suitor's complete obedience. So... So, I see the crooked logic of your mind. You might go so far as to say to him, 
Refuse me this, and I shall refuse to be your marquise. You would go so far as that? At need, I might. Do you not see the converse implication? Do you not see that your hands would then be tied? That you would be wanting in honour if afterwards you refused him? And do you think that I would consent to anything that could so tie your hands? Do you think I want to see you damned, Aline? Her hand fell away from his arm. Oh, you are mad, she exclaimed, quite out of patience. Possibly, but I like my madness. There is a thrill in it, unknown to such sanity as yours, by your leave, Aline. I think I will ride on to Gavriac. André, you must not. It is death to you. In her alarm, she backed her horse and pulled it across the road to bar his way. It was almost completely night by now, but from behind the rack of clouds overhead, a crescent moon sailed out to alleviate the darkness. Come now, she enjoined him. Be reasonable. Do as I bid you. See, there's a carriage coming up behind you. Do not let us be found here together thus. He made up his mind quickly. He was not the man to be actuated by false heroics about dying, and he had no fancy whatever for the gallows of Monsieur de Lediguier's providing. The immediate task that he had set himself might be accomplished. He had made heard, and ringingly, the voice that Monsieur de la Tour d'Azir imagined he had silenced, but he was very far from having done with life. Aline, on one condition only, and that, that you swear to me, that you will never seek the aid of Monsieur de la Tour d'Azir on my behalf. Since you insist, and as time presses, I consent, and now ride on with me as far as the lane. There is that carriage coming up. The lane to which she referred was one that branched off the road some three hundred yards near the village, and led straight up the hill to the chateau itself. In silence they rode together towards it, and together they turned into that thickly hedged and narrow by-path. At a depth of fifty yards she halted him. Now, she bade him. Obediently he swung down from his horse and surrendered the reins to her. Aline, he said, I haven't words in which to thank you. It isn't necessary, said she, but I shall hope to repay you some day. Nor is that necessary. Could I do less than I am doing? I do not want to hear of you hanged, André, nor does my uncle, though he is very angry with you. I suppose he is. And you can hardly be surprised. You were his delegate, his representative. He depended upon you, and you have turned your coat. He is rightly indignant, called you a traitor, and swears that he will never speak to you again. But he doesn't want you hanged, André. Then we are agreed on that, at least, for I don't want it myself. I'll make your peace with him. And now, good-bye, André. Send me a word when you are safe. She held out a hand that looked ghostly in the faint light. He took it and bore it to his lips. God bless you, Aline. She was gone, and he stood, listening to the receding clopper-clop of hooves until it grew faint in the distance. Then slowly, with shoulders hunched and head sunk on his breast, he retraced his steps to the main road, cogitating whither he should go. Quite suddenly he checked, remembering with dismay that he was almost entirely without money. In Brittany itself he knew of no dependable hiding-place, and as long as he was in Brittany his peril must remain imminent. 
Yet to leave the province, and to leave it as quickly as prudence dictated, horses would be necessary. And how was he to procure horses, having no money beyond a single louis d'or and a few pieces of silver? There was also the fact that he was very weary. He had had little sleep since Tuesday night, and not very much then, and much of the time had been spent in the saddle, a wearing thing to one so little accustomed to long rides. Worn as he was, it was unthinkable that he should go so far tonight. He must get as far as Chauvagne, perhaps, but there he must sup and sleep, and what then of tomorrow? Had he but thought of it before, perhaps Aline might have been able to assist him with the loan of a few louis. His first impulse now was to follow her to the chateau, but prudence dismissed the notion. Before he could reach her, he must be seen by servants, and word of his presence would go forth. There was no choice for him. He must tramp as far as Chauvagne, find a bed there, and leave to-morrow until it dawned. On the resolve, he set his face in the direction whence he had come. But again he paused. Chauvagne lay on the road to Rennes. To go that way was to plunge further into danger. He would strike south again. At the foot of some meadows on this side of the village, there was a ferry that would put him across the river. Thus he would avoid the village, and by placing the river between himself and the immediate danger, he would obtain an added sense of security. Elaine, turning out of the high road, a quarter of a mile this side of Gavriac, led down to that ferry. By this lane, some twenty minutes later, came André-Louis with dragging feet. He avoided the little cottage of the ferryman, whose window was alight, and in the dark crept down to the boat, intending, if possible, to put himself across. He felt for the chain by which the boat was moored, and ran his fingers along this to the point where it was fastened. Here, to his dismay, he found a padlock. He stood up in the gloom and laughed silently. Of course he might have known it. The ferry was the property of Monsieur de la Tour d'Azir, and not likely to be left unfastened, so that poor devils might cheat him of seigneurial dues. There being no possible alternative, he walked back to the cottage and rapped on the door. When it opened, he stood well back and aside, out of the shaft of light that issued thence. Ferry, he rapped out laconically. The ferryman, a burly scoundrel well known to him, turned aside to pick up a lantern and came forth as he was bidden. As he stepped from the little porch, he levelled the lantern so that its light fell on the face of this traveller. My God! he ejaculated. You realise I see that I am pressed, said André Louis, his eyes on the fellow's startled countenance. And well you may be, with the gallows waiting for you at Rennes, growled the ferryman. Since you have been so foolish as to come back to Gavriac, you had better go again as quickly as you can. I will say nothing of having seen you. I thank you, Fresnel. Your advice accords with my intention. That is why I need the boat. Ah, that, no, said Fresnel, with determination. I'll hold my peace, but it's as much as my skin is worth to help you. You need not have seen my face. Forget that you have seen it. I'll do that, monsieur, but that is all I will do. I cannot put you across the river. Then give me the key of the boat, and I will put myself across, 
That is the same thing. I cannot. I'll hold my tongue, but I will not, I dare not, help you. André-Louis looked a moment into that sullen, resolute face and understood. This man, living under the shadow of Latour d'Azir, dared exercise no will that might be in conflict with the will of his dread lord. Fresnel, he said quietly, if, as you say, the gallows claim me, the thing that has brought me to this extremity arises out of the shooting of Marbe. Had not Marbe been murdered, there would have been no need for me to have raised my voice as I have done. Marbe was your friend, I think. Will you, for his sake, lend me the little help I need to save my neck? The man kept his glance averted, and the cloud of sullenness deepened on his face. I would if I dared, but I dare not. Then quite suddenly he became angry. It was as if in anger he sought support. Don't you understand that I dare not? Would you have a poor man risk his life for you? What have you or yours ever done for me that you should ask that? You do not cross tonight in my ferry. Understand that, monsieur, and go at once. Go, before I remember that it may be dangerous even to have talked to you and not give information. Go. He turned on his heel to re-enter his cottage, and a wave of hopelessness swept over André-Louis. But in a second it was gone. The man must be compelled, and he had the means. He bethought him of a pistol pressed upon him by Le Chapoulier at the moment of his leaving Rennes, a gift which at the time he had almost disdained. True, it was not loaded, and he had no ammunition, but how was Fresnel to know that? He acted quickly, as with his right hand he pulled it from his pocket, and with his left he caught the ferryman by the shoulder and swung him round. "'What do you want now?' Fresnel demanded angrily. "'Haven't I told you that I—' He broke off short. The muzzle of the pistol was within a foot of his eyes. "'I want the key of the boat. That is all, Fresnel. And you can either give it to me at once, or I'll take it after I have burnt your brains. I should regret to kill you, but I shall not hesitate. It is your life against mine, Fresnel, and you'll not find it strange that if one of us must die, I prefer that it shall be you.' Fresnel dipped a hand into his pocket and fetched thence a key. He held it out to André-Louis in fingers that shook more in anger than in fear. I yield to violence, he said, showing his teeth like a snarling dog. But don't imagine that it will greatly profit you. André-Louis took the key. His pistol remained leveled. You threaten me, I think, he said. It is not difficult to read your threat. The moment I am gone, you will run to inform against me. You will set the Marais-Chaussée on my heels to overtake me. No, no, cried the other. He perceived his peril. He read his doom in the cold, sinister note in which André-Louis addressed him and grew afraid. I swear to you, monsieur, that I have no such intention. I think I had better make quite sure of you. Oh, my God, have mercy, monsieur. The knave was in a palsy of terror. I mean you no harm. I swear to heaven I mean you no harm. I will not say a word. I will not. I would rather depend upon your silence than your assurances. 
Still, you shall have your chance. I am a fool, perhaps, but I have a reluctance to shed blood. Go into the house, Fresnel. Go, man, I follow you. In the shabby main room of that dwelling, André-Louis halted him again. Get me a length of rope, he commanded, and was readily obeyed. Five minutes later, Fresnel was securely bound to a chair, and effectively silenced by a very uncomfortable gag improvised out of a block of wood and a muffler. On the threshold, the departing André-Louis turned. Good night, Fresnel, he said. Fierce eyes glared mute hatred at him. It is unlikely that your ferry will be required again tonight, but someone is sure to come to your relief quite early in the morning. Until then, bear your discomfort with what fortitude you can, remembering that you have brought it entirely upon yourself by your uncharitableness. If you spend the night considering that, the lesson should not be lost upon you. By morning, you may even have grown so charitable as not to know who it was that tied you up. Good night. He stepped out and closed the door. To unlock the ferry and pull himself across the swift-running waters, on which the faint moonlight was making a silver ripple, were matters that engaged not more than six or seven minutes. He drove the nose of the boat through the decaying sedges that fringed the southern bank of the stream, sprang ashore, and made the little craft secure. Then, missing the footpath in the dark, he struck out across a sodden meadow in quest of the road. Book Two The Buskin Chapter One The Trespassers Coming presently upon the Roudon Road, André-Louis, obeying instinct rather than reason, turned his face to the south, and plodded wearily and mechanically forward. He had no clear idea of whither he was going, or of whither he should go. All that imported at the moment was to put as great a distance as possible between Gavriac and himself. He had a vague, half-formed notion of returning to Nantes, and there, by employing the newly found weapon of his oratory, excite the people into sheltering him as the first victim of the persecution he had foreseen, and against which he had sworn them to take up arms. The idea was one which he entertained merely as an indefinite possibility, upon which he felt no real impulse to act. Meanwhile, he chuckled at the thought of Fresnel as he had last seen him, with his muffled face and glaring eyeballs. For one who was anything but a man of action, he writes, I felt that I had acquitted myself none so badly. It is a phrase that recurs at intervals in his sketchy confessions. Constantly is he reminding you that he is a man of mental, and not physical, activities, and apologizing when dire necessity drives him into acts of violence. I suspect this insistent upon his philosophic detachment, for which I confess he had justification enough, to betray his besetting vanity. With increasing fatigue came depression and self-criticism. He had stupidly overshot his mark in insultingly denouncing Monsieur de Lediguier. It is much better, he says somewhere, to be wicked than to be stupid. 
Most of this world's misery is the fruit not, as priests tell us, of wickedness, but of stupidity. And we know that of all stupidities he considered anger the most deplorable. Yet he had permitted himself to be angry with a creature like Monsieur de Lediguerre, a lackey, a fribble, a nothing, despite his potentialities for evil. He could perfectly have discharged his self-imposed mission without arousing the vindictive resentment of the king's lieutenant. He beheld himself vaguely launched upon life with the riding suit in which he stood, a single louis d'or and a few pieces of silver for all capital, and a knowledge of law which had been inadequate to preserve him from the consequences of infringing it. He had, in addition, but these things that were to be the real salvation of him he did not reckon, his gift of laughter, sadly repressed of late, and the philosophic outlook and mercurial temperament which are the stock in trade of your adventurer in all ages. Meanwhile, he tramped mechanically on through the night, until he felt that he could tramp no more. He had skirted the little township of Guichon, and now, within a half-mile of Guignon, and with Gavriac a good seven miles behind him, his legs refused to carry him any farther. He was midway across the vast common to the north of Guignon, and he came to a halt. He had left the road, and taken heedlessly to the footpath that struck across the waste of indifferent pasture interspersed with clumps of gorse. A stone's throw away on his right, the common was bordered by a thorn hedge. Beyond this loomed a tall building, which he knew to be an open barn, standing on the edge of a long stretch of meadowland. That dark, silent shadow it may have been that had brought him to a standstill, suggesting shelter to his subconsciousness. A moment he hesitated. Then he struck across towards a spot where a gap in the hedge was closed by a five-barred gate. He pushed the gate open, went through the gap, and stood now before the barn. It was as big as a house, yet consisted of no more than a roof carried upon half a dozen tall brick pillars. But densely packed under the roof was a great stack of hay that promised a warm couch on so cold a night. Stout timbers had been built into the brick pillars, with projecting ends to serve as ladders, by which the labourer might climb to pack or withdraw hay. With what little strength remained him, André-Louis climbed by one of these, and landed safely at the top, where he was forced to kneel for lack of room to stand upright. Arrived there, he removed his coat and neckcloth, his sodden boots and stockings. Next he cleared a trough for his body, and lying down in it, covered himself to the neck with the hay he had removed. Within five minutes he was lost to all worldly cares and soundly asleep. When next he awakened, the sun was already high in the heavens, from which he concluded that the morning was well advanced, and this before he realized quite where he was or how he came there. Then to his awakening senses came a drone of voices close at hand, to which at first he paid little heed. He was deliciously refreshed, luxuriously drowsy, and luxuriously warm. But as consciousness and memory grew more full, he raised his head clear of the hay, 
that he might free both ears to listen, his pulses faintly quickened by the nascent fear that those voices might bode him no good. Then he caught the reassuring accents of a woman, musical and silvery, though laden with alarm. Ah, oh, mon Dieu, Leandre, let us separate at once, if it should be my father. And upon this a man's voice broke in, calm and reassuring. No, no, man, you are mistaken. There is no one coming. We are quite safe. Why do you start at shadows? Ah, oh, Leandre, if he should find us here together, I tremble at the very thought. More was not needed to reassure André Louis. He had overheard enough to know that this was but the case of a pair of lovers, who, with less to fear of life, were yet, after the manner of their kind, more timid of heart than he. Curiosity drew him from his warm trough to the edge of the hay. Lying prone, he advanced his head and peered down. In the space of cropped meadow between the barn and the hedge, stood a man and a woman, both young. The man was a well-set-up, comely fellow, with a fine head of chestnut hair, tied in a queue by a broad bow of black satin. He was dressed with certain tawdry attempts at ostentatious embellishments, which did not prepossess one at first glance in his favour. His coat of a fashionable cut was a faded plum-coloured velvet, edged with silver lace, whose glory had long since departed. He affected ruffles, but for want of starch they hung like weeping willows over hands that were fine and delicate. His breeches were of plain black cloth, and his black stockings were of cotton, matters entirely out of harmony with his magnificent coat. His shoes, stout and serviceable, were decked with buckles of cheap, lacklustre paste. But for his engaging and ingenuous countenance, André Louis must have set him down as a knight of that order which lives dishonestly by his wits. As it was, he suspended judgment whilst pushing investigation further by a study of the girl. At the outset, be it confessed, that it was a study that attracted him prodigiously. And this notwithstanding the fact that, bookish and studious as were his ways, and in despite of his years, it was far from his habit to waste consideration on femininity. The child, she was no more than that, perhaps twenty at the most, possessed, in addition to the allurements of face and shape that went very near perfection, a sparkling vivacity and a grace of movement, the like of which André Louis did not remember ever before to have beheld assembled in one person. And her voice, too, that musical silvery voice that had awakened him, possessed in its exquisite modulations an allurement of its own that must have been irresistible, he thought, in the ugliest of her sex. She wore a hooded mantle of green cloth, and the hood being thrown back, her dainty head was all revealed to him. There were glints of gold, struck by the morning sun, from her light nut-brown hair that hung in a cluster of curls about her oval face. Her complexion was of a delicacy that he could compare only with a rose-petal. He could not at that distance discern the colour of her eyes, but he guessed them blue, as he admired the sparkle of them under the fine, dark line of eyebrows. He could not have told you why, but he was conscious that it aggrieved him to find her so intimate with this pretty young fellow, who was partly clad, as it appeared, in the cast-offs of a nobleman. He could not guess her station, 
but the speech that reached him was cultured in tone and word. He strained to listen. I shall know no peace, Leandre, until we are safely wedded, she was saying. Not until then shall I count myself beyond his reach, and yet, if we marry without his consent, we but make trouble for ourselves, and of gaining his consent I almost despair. Evidently, thought André Louis, her father was a man of sense, who saw through the shabby finery of Monsieur Leandre, and was not to be dazzled by cheap-paste buckles. My dear Clemen, the young man was answering her, standing squarely before her, and holding both her hands. You are wrong to despond. If I do not reveal to you all the stratagem that I have prepared to win the consent of your unnatural parent, it is because I am loath to rob you of the pleasure of the surprise that is in store. But place your faith in me, and in that ingenious friend of whom I have spoken, and who should be here at any moment. The stilted ass! Had he learnt that speech by heart in advance, or was he by nature a pedantic idiot who expressed himself in this set and formal manner? How came so sweet a blossom to waste her perfumes on such a prig? And what a ridiculous name the creature owned! Thus André Louis to himself, from his observatory. Meanwhile, she was speaking. That is what my heart desires, Leandre, but I am beset by fears, lest your stratagem should be too late. I am to marry this horrible Marquis of Sprufadelli this very day. He arrives by noon. He comes to sign the contract, to make me the Marchioness of Sprufadelli. Oh! It was a cry of pain from that tender young heart. The very name burns my lips. If it were mine, I should never utter it. Never. The man is so detestable. Save me, Leandre. Save me. You are my only hope. André Louis was conscious of a pang of disappointment. She failed to soar to the heights he had expected of her. She was evidently infected by the stilted manner of her ridiculous lover. There was an atrocious lack of sincerity about her words. They touched his mind, but left his heart unmoved. Perhaps this is because of his antipathy to Monsieur Leandre, and to the issue involved. So her father was marrying her to a marquis. That implied birth on her side, and yet she was content to pair off with this dull young adventurer in the tarnished lace. It was, he supposed, the sort of thing to be expected of a sex that all philosophy had taught him to regard as the maddest part of a mad species. It shall never be. Monsieur Leandre was storming passionately. Never, I swear it. And he shook his puny fist at the blue vault of heaven, Ajax defying Jupiter. Ah, but here comes our subtle friend. André Louis did not catch the name, Monsieur Leandre, having at that moment, turned to face the gap in the hedge. He will bring us news, I know. André Louis looked also in the direction of the gap. Through it emerged a lean, slight man, in a rusty cloak and a three-cornered hat, worn well down over his nose, so as to shade his face. And when presently he doffed this hat, and made a sweeping bow to the young lovers, André Louis confessed to himself that had he been cursed with such a hang-dog countenance, he would have worn his hat in precisely such a manner, so as to conceal as much of it as possible. If Monsieur Leandre appeared to be wearing, in part at least, the cast-offs of noblemen, 
the newcomer appeared to be wearing the cast-offs of Monsieur Leandre. Yet despite his vile clothes and viler face, with its three days' growth of beard, the fellow carried himself with a certain air. He positively strutted as he advanced, and he made a leg in a matter that was courtly and practised. Monsieur, said he, with the air of a conspirator, the time for action has arrived, and so has the Marquis. That is why. The young lovers sprang apart in consternation. Climen with clasped hands, parted lips, and a bosom that raced distractingly under its white fichu monteur. Monsieur Leandre agape, the very picture of foolishness and dismay. Meanwhile the newcomer rattled on. I was at the inn an hour ago when he descended there, and I studied him attentively whilst he was at breakfast. Having done so, not a single doubt remains me of our success. As for what he looks like, I could entertain you at length upon the fashion in which nature has designed his gross fatuity. But that is no matter. We are concerned with what he is, with the wit of him. And I tell you confidently that I fight him so dull and stupid that you may be confident he will tumble headlong into each and all of the traps I have so cunningly prepared for him. Tell me, tell me, speak, Clemen implored him, holding out her hands in a supplication no man of sensibility could have resisted. And then on the instant she caught her breath on a faint scream. My father! she exclaimed, turning distractedly from one to the other of those two. He is coming! We are lost! You must fly, Clemen, said Monsieur Leandre. "'Too late!' she sobbed. "'Too late! He is here!' "'Calm, mademoiselle, calm!' the subtle friend was urging her. "'Keep calm, and trust to me. I promise you that all shall be well.' "'Oh!' cried Monsieur Leandre, limply. "'Say what you will, my friend, this is ruin, the end of all our hopes. Your wits will never extricate us from this, never!' Through the gap— strode now an enormous man with an inflamed moon face and a great nose, decently dressed after the fashion of solid bourgeois. There was no mistaking his anger, but the expression that it found was an amazement to André Louis. Leandre, you're an imbecile! Too much phlegm! Too much phlegm! Your words wouldn't convince a ploughboy. Have you considered what they mean at all? Thus, he cried, and casting his round hat from him in a broad gesture, he took his stand at Monsieur Leandre's side, and repeated the very words that Leandre had lately uttered, what time the three observed him coolly and attentively. "'Oh, say what you will, my friend, this is ruin. The end of all our hopes. Your wits will never extricate us from this. Never!' A frenzy of despair vibrated in his accents. He swung again to face Monsieur Leandre. "'Thus!' he bade him contemptuously. Let the passion of your hopelessness express itself in your voice. Consider that you are not asking Scaramouche here whether he has put a patch in your breeches. You are a despairing lover, expressing— He checked abruptly, startled. André Louis, suddenly realising what was afoot, and how duped he had been, had loosed his laughter— the sound of it pealing and booming uncannily under the great roof that so immediately confined him was startling to those below. The fat man was the first to recover, and he announced it after his own fashion in one of the ready sarcasms in which he habitually dealt. "'Hark!' he cried. 
"'The very gods laugh at you, Leandre!' Then he addressed the roof of the barn and its invisible tenant. "'Ha! You there!' André-Louis revealed himself by a further protrusion of his tousled head. "'Good morning,' he said pleasantly. Rising now on his knees, his horizon was suddenly extended to include the broad common beyond the hedge. He beheld there an enormous and very battered travelling chaise, a cart piled up with timbers partly visible under the sheet of oiled canvas that covered them, and a sort of house on wheels equipped with the tin chimney, from which the smoke was slowly curling. Three heavy Flemish horses and a couple of donkeys, all of them hobbled, were contentedly cropping the grass in the neighbourhood of these vehicles. These, had he perceived them sooner, must have given him the clue to the queer scene that had been playing under his eyes. Beyond the hedge other figures were moving. Three, at that moment, came crowding into the gap. A saucy-faced girl, with a tip-tilted nose, whom he supposed to be Columbine, the soubrette. A lean, active youngster, who must be the lackey Harlequin, and another rather loutish youth who might be a zany or an apothecary. All this he took in at a comprehensive glance that consumed no more time than it had taken him to say good morning. To that good morning, Pantaloon replied in a bellow, "'What the devil are you doing up there?' "'Precisely the same thing that you are doing down there,' was the answer. "'I am trespassing.' "'Eh?' said Pantaloon, and looked at his companions." some of the assurance beaten out of his big red face, although the thing was one that they did habitually, to hear it called by its proper name was disconcerting. "'Whose land is this?' he asked, with diminishing assurance. André-Louis answered, whilst drawing on his stockings. "'I believe it to be the property of the Marquis de la Tour d'Azir.' "'That's a high-sounding name. Is the gentleman severe?' "'The gentleman,' said André-Louis, is the devil, or rather I should prefer to say upon reflection that the devil is a gentleman by comparison. And yet, interposed the villainous-looking fellow who played Scaramouche, by your own confessing you don't hesitate yourself to trespass upon his property. Ah, but then you see I am a lawyer, and lawyers are notoriously unable to observe the law, just as actors are notoriously unable to act. Moreover, sir, Nature imposes her limits upon us, and nature conquers respect for law, as she conquers all else. Nature conquered me last night, when I had got as far as this. And so I slept here without regard for the very high and puissant Marquis de la Tour d'Azir. At the same time, Monsieur Scaramouche, you'll observe that I did not flaunt my trespass quite as openly as you and your companions. Having donned his boots— André-Louis came nimbly to the ground in his shirt-sleeves, his riding-coat over his arm. As he stood there to don it, the little cunning eyes of the heavy father conned him in detail, observing that his clothes, if plain, were of a good fashion, that his shirt was of fine cambric, and that he expressed himself like a man of culture, such as he claimed to be, Monsieur Pantaloon was disposed to be civil. "'I am grateful to you for the warning, sir.' He was beginning. Act upon it, my friend. The garde champêtre of Monsieur d'Azir have orders to fire on trespassers. Imitate me, and decamp. They followed him upon the instant, through the gap in the hedge, to the encampment on the common. There André-Louis took his leave of them. 
But as he was turning away, he perceived a young man of the company performing his morning toilet at a bucket placed upon one of the wooden steps at the tail of the house on wheels. A moment he hesitated. Then he turned frankly to Monsieur Pantaloon, who was still at his elbow. "'If it were not unconscionable to encroach so far upon your hospitality, monsieur,' said he, "'I would beg leave to imitate that very excellent young gentleman before I leave you.' "'But, my dear sir!' Good nature oozed out of every pore of the fat body of the master-player. "'It is nothing at all. But by all means, Rodemont will provide what you require. He is the dandy of the company in real life, though a fire-eater on the stage. Hey, Rodemont!' The young ablutionist straightened his long body from the right angle in which it had been bent over the bucket, and looked out through a foam of soap-suds. Pantaloon issued an order, and Rodemont, who was indeed as gentle and amiable off the stage as he was formidable and terrible upon it, made the stranger free of the bucket in the friendliest manner. So André-Louis once more removed his neckcloth and his coat, and rolled up the sleeves of his fine shirt, whilst Rodemont procured him soap, a towel, and presently a broken comb, and even a greasy hair-ribbon, in case the gentleman should have lost his own. This last André-Louis declined, but the comb he gratefully accepted, and having presently washed himself clean, stood, with the towel flung over his left shoulder, restoring order to his dishevelled locks, before a broken piece of mirror affixed to the door of the travelling-house. He was standing thus, the gentle Rodemont babbled aimlessly at his side, when his ears caught the sound of hooves. He looked over his shoulder carelessly, and then stood frozen, with uplifted comb and loosened mouth. Away across the common, on the road that bordered it, he beheld a party of seven horsemen in the blue coats with red facings of the Marais-Chaussée. Not for a moment did he doubt what was the quarry of this prowling gendarmerie. It was as if the chill shadow of the gallows had fallen suddenly upon him. And then the troop halted, abreast with them, and the sergeant leading it sent his bawling voice across the common. "'Hey there! Hey!' His tone rang with menace. Every member of the company, and there were some twelve in all, stood at gaze. Pantaloon advanced a step or two, stalking, his head thrown back, his manner that of a king's lieutenant. "'Now what the devil is this?' quoth he but whether of fate or heaven or the sergeant was not clear. There was a brief colloquy among the horsemen, then they came trotting across the common straight towards the player's encampment. André-Louis had remained standing at the tail of the travelling-house. He was still passing the comb through his straggling hair, but mechanically and unconsciously. His mind was all intent upon the advancing troop, his wits alert and gathered together for a leap in whatever direction should be indicated. Still in the distance, but evidently impatient, the sergeant bawled a question. "'Who gave you leave to encamp here?' It was a question that reassured André-Louis not at all. He was not deceived by it, into supposing or even hoping that the business of these men was merely to round up vagrants and trespassers. That was no part of their real duty. It was something done in passing, done perhaps in the hope of levying attacks of their own.' It was very long odds that they were from Rennes, and that their real business was the hunting down of a young lawyer charged with sedition. Meanwhile, Pantaloon was shouting back, "'Who gave us leave, do you say? What leave? 
This is communal land, free to all. The sergeant laughed unpleasantly and came on, his troop following. There is, said a voice at Pantaloon's elbow, no such thing as communal land in the proper sense in all of Monsieur de la Tour d'Azir's vast domain. This is a terre sensive, and his bailiffs collect his dues from all who send their beasts to graze here. Pantaloon turned to behold at his side André Louis in his shirt-sleeves, and without a neckcloth, the towel still trailing over his left shoulder, a comb in his hand, his hair half-dressed. "'God of God!' swore Pantaloon. "'But it is an ogre, this Marquis de la Tour d'Azir.' "'I have told you already what I think of him,' said André Louis. "'As for these fellows, you had better let me deal with them. I have experience of their kind.' And without waiting for Pantaloon's consent, André Louis stepped forward to meet the advancing men of the Marechaussée. He had realized that here boldness alone could save him. When a moment later the sergeant pulled up his horse alongside of this half-dressed young man, André Louis combed his hair, what time he looked up with a half-smile, intended to be friendly, ingenuous, and disarming. In spite of it, the sergeant hailed him gruffly. "'Are you the leader of this troop of vagabonds?' "'Yes. That is to say, my father there is really the leader.' And he jerked a thumb in the direction of Monsieur Pantaloon, who stood at gaze out of earshot in the background. "'What is your pleasure, Captain?' "'My pleasure is to tell you that you are very likely to be jailed for this, all the pack of you.' His voice was loud and bullying. It carried across the common to the ears of every member of the company, and brought them all to stricken attention where they stood.' The lot of strolling players was hard enough, without the addition of jailings. But how so, my captain? This is communal land, free to all. It is nothing of the kind. Where are the fences? quoth André Louis, waving the hand that held the comb, as if to indicate the openness of the place. Fences? snorted the sergeant. What have fences to do with the matter? This is terre sensive. There is no grazing here— save by payment of dues to the Marquis de la Tour d'Azir. But we are not grazing, quoth the innocent André Louis. To the devil with you, Zany, you are not grazing, but your beasts are grazing. They eat so little, André Louis apologized, and again essayed his ingratiating smile. The sergeant grew more terrible than ever. That is not the point. The point is that you are committing what amounts to a theft— "'and there's the jail for thieves.' "'Technically, I suppose you are right,' sighed André Louis, "'and fell to combing his hair again, "'still looking up into the sergeant's face. "'But we have sinned in ignorance. "'We are grateful to you for the warning.' "'He passed the comb into his left hand, "'and with his right fumbled in his breeches' pocket, "'whence there came a faint jingle of coins. "'We are desolated to have brought you out of your way.' Perhaps for their trouble your men would honour us by stopping at the next inn to drink the health of, uh, of this Monsieur de la Tour d'Azir, or any other health that they think proper. Some of the clouds lifted from the sergeant's brow, but not yet all. Well, well, said he gruffly. But you must decamp, you understand. He leaned from the saddle to bring his recipient hand to a convenient distance. André-Louis placed in it a three-livre piece. "'In half an hour,' said André-Louis. "'Why in half an hour? Why not at once?' "'Oh, but time to break our fast.' 
They looked at each other. The sergeant next considered the broad piece of silver in his palm. Then at last his features relaxed from their sternness. After all, said he, it is none of our business to play the tip-staves for Monsieur de la Tour d'Azir. We are of the Marchaussee from Rennes. André-Louis' eyelids played him false by flickering. But if you linger, look out for the Garde-Champêtre of the Marquis. You'll find them not at all accommodating. Well, well, a good appetite to you, monsieur, said he, in valediction. A pleasant ride, my captain, answered André-Louis. The sergeant wheeled his horse about, his troop wheeled with him. They were starting off when he reined up again. You, monsieur, he called over his shoulder. In a bound, André-Louis was beside his stirrup. We are in quest of a scoundrel named André-Louis Moreau, from Gavriac, a fugitive from justice wanted for the gallows on a matter of sedition. You've seen nothing, I suppose, of a man whose movement seemed to you suspicious? Indeed we have, said André-Louis very boldly his face eager with consciousness of the ability to oblige. "'You have?' cried the sergeant in a ringing voice. "'Where? When?' "'Yesterday evening in the neighbourhood of Grignon.' "'Yes, yes,' the sergeant felt himself hot upon the trail. "'There was a fellow who seemed very fearful of being recognised, a man of fifty or thereabouts.' Fifty? cried the sergeant, and his face fell. "'Bah!' This man of ours is no older than yourself, a thin wisp of a fellow, of about your own height and of black hair, just like your own, by the description. Keep a lookout on your travels, Master Player. The King's Lieutenant in Rennes has sent us word this morning that he will pay ten louis to anyone giving information that will lead to this scoundrel's arrest. So there's ten louis to be earned by keeping your eyes open and sending word to the nearest justices. It would be a fine windfall for you, that— "'A fine windfall indeed, Captain,' answered André-Louis, laughing. "'But the sergeant had touched his horse with the spur, "'and was already trotting off in the wake of his men. "'André-Louis continued to laugh, quite silently, "'as he sometimes did when the humour of a jest was peculiarly keen. "'Then he turned slowly about, "'and came back towards Pantaloon and the rest of the company, "'who were now all grouped together at gaze.' Pantaloon advanced to meet him with both hands outheld. For a moment, André-Louis thought he was about to be embraced. "'We hail you our saviour, the big man declaimed. "'Already the shadow of the jail was creeping over us, chilling us to the very marrow. "'For though we be poor, yet are we all honest folk, "'and not one of us has ever suffered the indignity of prison, "'nor is there one of us would survive it.' "'But for you, my friend, it might have happened. "'What magic did you work?' "'The magic that is to be worked in France with a king's portrait. "'The French are a very loyal nation, as you will have observed. "'They love their king and his portrait even better than himself, "'especially when it is wrought in gold. "'But even in silver it is respected. "'The sergeant was so overcome by the sight of that noble visage, "'on a three-livre piece, that his anger vanished.' "'and he has gone his ways, leaving us to depart in peace.' "'Ah, true. He said we must decamp. "'About it, my lads. Come, come!' "'But not until after breakfast,' said André-Louis. "'A half-hour for breakfast was conceded us by that loyal fellow, "'so deeply was he touched. 
True, he spoke of possible garde champetre, but he knows as well as I do that they are not seriously to be feared, and that if they came, again, the king's portrait, wrought in copper this time, would produce the same melting effect upon them. So, my dear Monsieur Pantaloon, break your fast at your ease. I can smell your cooking from here, and from the smell I argue that there is no need to wish you a good appetite. My friend, my saviour! Pantaloon flung a great arm about the young man's shoulders. "'You shall stay to breakfast with us.' "'I confess to a hope that you would ask me,' said André Louis. "'This is B.J. Harrison. "'I hope you've enjoyed this unabridged production "'of Scaramouche, Part 3 of 12, by Raphael Sabatini. "'If you've enjoyed this book,' please become a supporting member of the Classic Tales by going to classictalesaudiobooks.com. And please visit our free category and tell all your friends to come get some free audiobooks from us. During this time of pandemic, we're giving away a lot of free stuff. If you know anybody that it would help, please let them know. You're welcome to it. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me every week, and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper. <laughs>